turning together in our uh, catechism questions and answers. We'll come to some scriptures as well, but uh, catechism questions and answers, they're printed out on that uh, bulletin on the, uh, the sermon notes page, um, or they're also in the back of the hymnal as well. So let's read together Lord's Day number 18. Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day number 18. It's on page 879, as well as on page 880. Uh, four questions tonight, four questions tonight uh, about the ascension of Jesus. So question 46. Question 46. I'll read the question, as always, if you would say the answer with me and uh, take to heart, we, I hope, and pray and trust uh, what the Lord teaches us tonight uh, from his word and our catechism helps us to understand. What do, you under- what do you mean by saying, quote, he ascended to heaven? That Christ, while his disciples watched, was taken up from the earth into heaven and remains there on our behalf until he comes again to judge the living and the dead. Question 47, but isn't Christ with us until the end of the world as he promised us? Christ is true man and true God. In his human nature, Christ is not now on earth, but in his divinity, majesty, grace, and spirit, he is never absent from us. And then question 48, if his humanity is not present wherever his divinity is, then aren't the two natures of Christ separated from each other? Certainly not. Since divinity is not limited and is present everywhere, it is evident that Christ's divinity is surely beyond the bounds of the humanity that has been taken on. But at the same time, his divinity is in and remains personally united to his humanity. And then finally, Q&A number 49. How does Christ's ascension to heaven benefit us? First, he is our advocate in heaven, in the presence of his Father. Second, we have our own flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that Christ, our head, will also take us, his members, up to himself. Third, he sends his Spirit to us on earth as a corresponding pledge. By the Spirit's power, we seek not earthly things, but the things above, where Christ is, sitting at God's right hand. Now, uh, when we talk about the Beatles, okay, those of us younger, you probably don't know who the Beatles are, um, but when we talk about the Beatles, those of us old enough to know that great uh, rock band uh, of some of your some of your youth, I won't point fingers, but some of you are young enough uh, to live it, right? Uh, the rest of us have just listened to it on YouTube. But uh, when I say the Beatles, who comes to mind? Who comes to mind? Paul, McCartney, John Lennon, and of course Ringo, right? Oh, you actually know his name. Wow, surprising. So uh, that was my great illustration was that we usually think of the first three though, don't we? So Paul McCartney, still alive. He's a, you know, he's Sir Paul McCartney now. He's a great songwriter. John Lennon, of course, uh, who was, you know, uh, probably like the spirit behind the Beatles, but you know he's, he he died, uh, and uh, and Ringo Starr, you know, the great drummer, just the name Ringo, you know, he st- and he still appears on social media and, and the news even at times today. Uh, but then there's also the fourth Beatle, you know, George Harrison. Um, people don't really know of him because he's just not uh, he hasn't been out there as much. Uh, but there are there were four Beatles. And uh, typically we think of the three, the kind of the main, the main three. And the fourth one kind of gets a little bit of, of short shrift, if you will. 
So sometimes we, we have uh, things in mind or there are people or places, uh, topics and ideas that when we think about them, certain things come to mind. And so, you know, if I ask you kids tonight, you know, what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? Um, well, what do you do, kids? What did Jesus do? What are the high points? What are the key things that he did? Died on the cross for our sins. He was resurrected. Now, obviously, that means he had to be born. So we know Christmas, he's born. We know Good Friday, he died. We know the resurrection, that's Easter. But what's missing? He also ascended. He also ascended. So we, you know, we, we ask, I ask that question because I would ask... We, I, if I asked you, and uh, as I just did, we typically think of Jesus you know, dying for our sins and rising again. Dying for our sins and rising again. And maybe we'll remember the birth, but we oftentimes forget the ascension. Okay? It's sort of the, the fourth beetle of the work of Jesus Christ. It's sort of out there and just forgotten by us. Um, but our catechism reminds us of the importance of the ascension. Uh, and I might say, you know, for some, in some ways it might be understandable because uh, on Easter Sunday and I think the week after that I've, I've mentioned, you know, when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, what is the gospel? He reminds the Corinthians of what the gospel is. He says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised the third day according to the scriptures. So even the apostle, when he summarizes the gospel, thinks of death, burial, resurrection. Ascension, though, is super important. And you probably noticed as we were reading those questions, there are four questions on the ascension we read last sunday about the resurrection and there was just one question so it's interesting how the apostle paul puts the resurrection as uh sort of the capstone in the arch of christianity it's the the linchpin of christianity if, if it's true it's all true if the resurrection didn't happen nothing that we say is true but yet our catechism gives us one question about the resurrection but then it gives us four about the ascension we'll come to that in just a bit on why um, so let's think about some basic things. Let's turn our Bibles to, to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. We, we have to know the basics of the ascension before we can think a little more deeply about it. We have to know that it actually happened and, and what it means. So to ascend, children, to ascend. If you were to, to write down a little definition of to ascend, what does it mean to, to ascend? To go up right? To go up. So to descend is to go down. To ascend is to go up. So Jesus ascended. He ascended into heaven, as we say. And we see that here in Luke's gospel, chapter 24. At the very end of the gospel, verse 50 and 50, uh, verse 50 and 51. Uh, he led them, his disciples, out as far as Bethany, this is outside of the city of Jerusalem, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. This is what the Old Testament priests would do. They would sacrifice animals in the uh, outside of the courts, and they would go in and pour the blood. They would come back out, and their hands would be stained with blood, and they would lift their hands up, uh, Leviticus 9 says, and they would bless the people. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up, carried up into heaven. And of course, it says they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. He ascended. And Luke describes it as being carried up, reminding us of uh, great uh, ancient figures like Enoch, who was taken up, and, uh, and Elijah, who was carried up into heaven uh, on a chariot of God, this, this angelic ch- uh, chariot. Jesus was carried up out of the sight of his disciples. And then you turn over in your Bible uh, to Acts chapter 1, a text that we are kind of familiar with, I hope. Acts chapter 1. 
Uh, at verse number nine, he tells his disciples to remain in Jerusalem to wait for the Holy Spirit who's going to give them power to be witnesses. I mentioned this morning. And then in verse nine, when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up, uh, looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So Luke says that he was carried up, sort of that Old Testament kind of language. And here in, the, in, in Acts, Luke also was the author. And he says that a cloud, notice, notice that again, verse number nine, a cloud took him out of their sight. Where in the Old Testament do we, do we read about clouds and God? Clouds and God in the same... Moses, right? Moses. So the Old Testament clouds are typically associated with the presence of God. A pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. That was how they knew God was present and marching with them through the wilderness. Moses in the temple. Uh, the tabernacle, that is. The, temp- the tabernacle. Isaiah in the temple. Isaiah 6. Uh, the, the, uh, the temple was filled with God's glory. That image of the language of glory is a, the language of clouds in the Old Testament. So God's glory takes him up out of their sight. And so that's why the answer tells us there, uh, Christ, while his disciples watched, was taken up from heaven into earth. This, awe, uh, this, this, this awe-filled uh, part of the work of Jesus. They stood there. He had blessed them. He spoke. And then he was taken up by the chariot and by the glorious cloud of God himself. I think it was last week or the week before uh, that... Uh, 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 SpaceX exploded. I don't know if you saw it or not, but uh, the largest ship, uh, I sent it to my two, two oldest boys. Uh, I sent them a text when it happened. It was so cool. Uh, the largest ship ever assembled. I think it was absolutely enormous. Uh, it's called Starship. Yeah, it sounds very sci-fi. Uh, big, this big Starship. It was the first time they took the rocket, the biggest rocket in this ship on top, and they launched it up, and it got like 40 seconds up into, up, up into the air, uh, and then it was kaput. It blew up. But uh, everyone was just in awe. And I was in awe. It was just an amazing thing. They showed how big it was and uh, really cool. I told the boys, you know, this is like when I was a kid watching a space shuttle, you know, fly, fly overhead in L.A., landing out there in the desert. So uh, that idea of awe and the wonder of, you know, we look up. We want to ascend into space. And we want to get farther than everyone's, anyone's ever been before and so forth. And so here's Jesus ascending. And they're, they're, they're in awe and wonder that God in his glory and this chariot idea taking him up there. And he remains there on our behalf. Notice that little phrase that's mentioned to us there in our catechism. Uh, it'll come back to that in that last question, 49. What does it mean that he uh, remains there on our behalf? Well, it means for our benefits. He is there now for you, children, for your benefit, for your good, for your blessing. And I'll just mention a couple of verses you can write these down, maybe check them out later. But in Romans 8, verse 34, we are taught by the Apostle Paul that Jesus at the right hand of God is now interceding for us at the right hand of God. And in Hebrews chapter number 7, uh, we are told this great verse that consequently he is able to save those who come to God through him. He's able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Why? Because he ever lives to make intercession for them, for those who believe. He ever lives. He's alive, he's been raised, and he's now ascended at the right hand of God, and he's there in life for your benefit, interceding for you. 
and he's there until he comes. That answer says, summarizing Acts 1.11, where the angel says, why are you staring and gazing in awe and wonder? The same Jesus who was taken up is going to come back down. And so he's there for us, for our benefits, until that great and glorious day. So those are the basic things about the ascension. And then we come to these big ideas. These two questions, 47 and 48, uh, these very deep theological questions and, uh, and truths. Now, the reason why, and we won't spend a lot of time on this, but the reason why these particular questions come up is because during the time of the other Reformation, between Protestants, within the Protestant family of Christians, uh, there were kind of groups, and we call those groups Reformed, and we call another group Lutherans. And uh, for the most part, there's uh, harmony of theology. We believe that Jesus Christ alone saves us by the grace of God alone. We receive it by faith alone. That's justification, sola fide, by faith alone. We believe there are only two sacraments of baptism and communion. Uh, We believe that Jesus Christ is the head of the church, not the Pope in Rome, and so forth. But there were also some minor differences. They're big differences, but uh, there were a few differences between Reformed and Lutheran Protestants. And one of them was on how we understand the nature of Christ. His two natures, divine and human, how those two relate to each other in his one person, and what does that mean for us in terms of Christ's presence? Why? Because that leads to another debate about what happens at that communion table that we had here this morning. Right? Where is Christ? Where is Christ? Is he present? How is he present? And so forth. So the, the, the behind the scenes of that debate is this idea of Christology. So uh, sometimes we talk about apologetics. Apologetics is us giving answers to those who do not believe, unbelievers. Apologetics is giving answers to unbelievers. Uh, polemics, P-O-L-E-M-I-C-S, polemics, that's between believers. And we have differences, right? Um, so you, those of us online will see uh, the social media meme, baptize your babies, right? Because we're Reformed. We're not Baptists. So we, ma- we make fun of our Baptist friends. They're our brothers and sisters, but we make fun of them. So we have this sort of polemical exchange with them uh, on baptizing your babies. And of course, Luther- our Lutheran friends uh, say similar things to us about baptism and communion uh, in the nature of Christ. So question 47, question 47, and it asks this very biblical question, but isn't Christ with us until the end of the world as he promised us? Where did Jesus promise to be with us until the end of the world? Sure, he won't leave us or forsake us, but where, where in particular in the gospel stories does Jesus say, I am with you always to the end of the age? At the end of the gospel of Matthew, he gives his so-called great commission. Jesus says the reason why you can go and baptize and make disciples and teach all the nations to observe all that I have commanded you is because, lo, I am with you always to the close of the age. And so the question is, well, if he ascended to the right hand of God and he's not coming back, as the angel said, until that final day, well, isn't he with us? I thought he said he's with us. Is he with us? Is he not with us? As he promised. And the answer gives us this uh, very important theological uh, explanation based on what we've already seen from the Bible, that Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, is both divine and human. And so it says Christ is true man and true God. Right? These are his two natures. True man, true God. In his human nature, Christ is not now on earth. That's what he says. 
That's what the apostles saw. They saw him go up, and the angel said, he's going to come back in the same way that he's gone. So it's an assumption. It's a biblical assumption, not just by the words, but also the actions and the, and the, idea, and the, and the, and the eyesight of the disciples, that in his human nature, he's not now on earth. But, but, in his divinity, majesty, grace, spirit, he's never absent from us. So, in other words, when Jesus said, I am with you always to the end of the age, he's speaking of his person, but then we would rightly say, well, that means his divine nature is with us always. Uh, Let's also look at John chapter 14. John chapter 14. So, uh, the answer says there that in his divinity, his majesty, his grace, and spirit, in spirit, he's with us. So, let's turn to John 14 uh, at Chapter, uh, at verse 16. John 14 at verse 16. Jesus says in verse 15, of course, he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And then he says this. I will not, I should say, he's going to ask the Father for another helper like him because he's about to leave. And they're sad about that. And then he says, verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Well, how is Jesus going to come to the disciples if he's gone? Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live, you also will live. Well, how are they going to see Jesus if he's gone? By the power of the Holy Spirit. He's going to send the Holy Spirit to them. And he does that, of course, on the day of Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit is then uh, that down payment. He's the guarantee to us of the presence of Jesus Christ with us. So we don't have to say that Christ in his human nature is present with us to affirm wholeheartedly that Jesus Christ walks and moves amongst us as a church. No, we say that, we can say that because of the Holy Spirit being with us. That's what Jesus said. I'm leaving you, but I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to ask the Father to send you the Holy Spirit. And because you have the Holy Spirit, you'll see me, you will know that I'm with you. Amen? So that's how our catechism answers that sort of conundrum, that little thorny question. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit who brings to us all that Jesus Christ has done for us. He, he, we might say he makes Christ present to us because he's another helper like Jesus. But the question is asked then, and this is the interchange between Calvinist and Lutheran or Reformed Protestant and Lutheran or Evangelical Protestant, If his humanity is not present, wherever his divinity is, then aren't the two natures of Christ separated from each other? Again, there's a lot going on there, and there's a huge polemical interchange. There are thousands upon thousands of pages written uh, during the 16th century over this stuff. A lot of ink was spilled. Uh, Lutherans fought on the side of uh, Roman Catholics against Calvinists in wars over this stuff. That's how serious they took it. Uh, But notice the answer. The answer is certainly not. We don't separate the two natures of Jesus Christ. Why? Because divinity is not limited 
and is present everywhere. Why do we say that? That divinity is not limited or confined, but it's present everywhere. Why do we say that? God is omnipresent. Good. So it's just a basic biblical fact that God is everywhere at once. That God fills everything. He's immense. God is God. And so because he's God, he is present everywhere. God cannot be limited. That's what it means to be God's. So, for example, we have that famous story of uh, Solomon when he prays at the temple's dedication. Uh, later on in the book of Acts, Stephen mentions that in Acts chapter 7 that we saw, where Solomon dedicates a temple, and he says that God cannot be contained in temples made by hands. God is not limited. Right? That's the idea of God's omnipresence. God's divinity is not limited. Everywhere present. It is evident that Christ's divinity is surely beyond the bounds of the humanity that he's taken on. If his divinity is a true divinity, we can't say that the divine nature was swallowed up inside the actual body of Jesus from head all the way down to toe. It wasn't that there's God, the Son of God, and that uh, uh, his human nature is sort of like a, like a onesie that you put on your baby. Right? From head to toe, or from toe to head. And you zip it up, and you completely enclose the divine nature. Not, not at all. Not at all. Again, it's evident that Christ's divinity is surely beyond the bounds of the humanity that has been taken on. But at the same time, his divinity is in and remains personally united to his humanity. So, Jesus is present with us because he promised the Holy Spirit... That does not mean that we sever or separate his two natures from his person. We say that his divine nature is beyond the bounds of his humanity, while at the same time, because God is everywhere, it's personally united to his human nature in his person, uh, the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that leads us finally uh, tonight to uh, the benefits of this. Why, Why is it important to know that Jesus ascended? And he's there on our behalf for our benefit, for our good. How does it help us? And you probably have noticed the catechism. We've seen this multiple times already, uh, that it doesn't only tell us the what of the Christian faith, but also tells us the so what. The what and the so what. Kids, you're probably getting pretty good. I hope at this time, by this point in your life, you're you're getting pretty good at the, the what, right? The what. What did Jesus do? Emmanuel said he died for sins on the cross. Sadie said he rose again. You guys are getting good at the what, Our catechism, like the Bible, wants us to know, though, the so what. Why is it important? Why is it so important to you? That question 49 gives us three little benefits, big benefits, uh, very important for us. First of all, he's our advocate. Why does it matter that he ascended? What's the significance of that for us? He is our advocate. He's our advocate in heaven in the presence of his Father. God is holy. You are sinful. Jesus advocates for you at the right hand of God to tell you, to remind you, to assure you uh, that you have a right to enter into the presence of God. One day you will be ushered in into that presence. Jesus is your passport. Jesus is the guarantee. He's all that you need. He's all the paperwork that you need to get into the kingdom of God, into everlasting life. Why? Because he's your advocate. 
And you go there, and of course, we, we know the stories of men like Job, where the devil comes and accuses. Jesus is the advocate. He's the advocate. The Apostle John even tells us in 1 John, uh, somewhere in 1 John, that uh, even if our conscience accuses us, that God is greater than our conscience. The Holy Spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit who's within us, uh, by the ascended Jesus Christ, and together uh, we learn that uh, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is our advocate for us sinners before a holy God, giving us access to him. So he's our advocate, right? He, he pleads our case. He pleads our case. Secondly, he's a sure pledge. We have our own flesh in heaven, the answer says. Is your your flesh in heaven right now? We have our own flesh in heaven. How How can we say that tonight? How can we say that tonight? We belong to, yeah, because we're united to Jesus Christ. And wherever he is, you are too. So because he took upon himself your human nature and you by faith belong to him, where he is at the right hand of God, that's where you are too. We have our own flesh in heaven. Why? As a sure pledge that Christ our head will also take us, his members, up to himself. Just as he ascended in our human nature, so too one day we in that very same human nature that you and I know so well, we too will be in the presence of God and behold God face to face for all of eternity. And then finally, not only is he our advocate at the right hand of God, ever living to make intercession for us, and not only is his flesh there, meaning our flesh, and that gives us a, a, uh, an assurance and a confidence now that we are going to be there then with him, but finally, the answer says there that he sends us his spirit. He sends us his spirit as a corresponding pledge. We have, the, we have Christ, the right hand of God, way up there, as it were, in heaven, and we have the Holy Spirit down here on earth, together as advocates, Jesus and the other helper, the Holy Spirit, guaranteeing to us, blessing us, encouraging us, strengthening our faith that we belong to Jesus Christ, body, soul, life, and in death. And it's by the Spirit's power who is within us that we seek not earthly things, as Colossians 3 says. We seek not earthly things, but we seek the things that are above, where Christ is, sitting at God's right hand. So when you think of the ascension, and as we recite those words on Sunday mornings, he ascended into heaven. Think of him being an advocate for you, sinner. Think of him there being a down payment, a pledge, a guarantee of the fact that you too one day are going to be there in heaven. And think of the Holy Spirit who's been given to you to lift up your hearts from all the troubles and sorrows and persecutions and the drama of this life to lead you there, to fill your mind with good things, your heart with truth and the words of the Lord himself to encourage you in your daily journey and in your daily walk. May the Lord help us to know Jesus, not just the what of what he did, but to know the so what, why he is so important, why his ascension, although sometimes we forget it, why it's super important for our faith. Let's go to the Lord tonight in prayer. Let's respond together uh, on that order of service once again. 
as we, uh, we hear the word, let's respond to it. And so, brothers and sisters, the Lord be with you. Let's pray, saying, Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Heavenly Father, we come to you through Christ, your Son, our Lord, Jesus. And we do so in the power of the Holy Spirit. We lift our hearts to you, as we sang uh, just a bit ago. We lift our souls to you. And we ask that you would help us, we pray, in this world. Help us here on earth with the power of your Holy Spirit to know Christ to know that we're not orphans, to know that Jesus is away from us for our good, preparing a place for us where we are going to dwell forever and ever. And we know, Lord, that uh, it feels that he's absent, he's distant, he's not here. And when we feel like the church is assaulted and shrinking, we feel like the universal church is being overwhelmed by persecution and all kinds of ideologies that are just more and more trying to crack down uh, on the things that we believe. Uh, Enable us by your Holy Spirit to know that all this is the means, the path, the way by which you are working out our good, which is your glory. That all things do work together for for good for those who love God and who are the called according to his purpose. And that it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. And that although we are heirs of God and joint heirs of Jesus Christ, we are so provided we suffer with Jesus. And so enable us to go through life with all the sufferings and the trials of being human, but also especially the trials and sufferings of being a Christian. May these these be means by which you communicate to us your grace and your sustaining uh, love in our lives. Lord, continue to work in our midst as you're stirring us up to pray to show dependence upon you through prayer. Pray for the women of our church, Lord, as they gather uh, to study, but also to pray that uh, you would use their time uh, to devote themselves to prayer for us as brothers, as men, as we uh, have been, uh, have uh, began gathering for that purpose as well. Uh, And Lord, in our own lives every day, and as we gather here as a church, we, we pray that your word from the book of Acts, as it stirs us up, that it would be you stirring us up uh, to pray, to seek you, to know you, to find you, uh, that great pearl of great price, the treasure that uh, we desire above all things. Uh, Lord, lift our souls to you. Renew us and refresh us tonight as we go out and enable us this week to live with power, to be full of your Holy Spirit, and to be confident in the Lord Jesus Christ and to speak his gospel uh, whenever we can, knowing that you, Lord, are the one who will do all the work to bring growth and to bring that harvest of new life that you promise. We ask all this in Jesus' name.